Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 38 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And we've got a lot to talk about in this episode. Oh, we're going to be going across the spectrum of American history here today. We're going to be going from 2021 all the way to the 1800s and beyond. We're going to be talking about Millie, the military, mandates, California madness, so many things in this episode. I'm ready to just dive straight in. I don't know about you, but Jacob, but this first topic, I just, I have to talk about this. There's a lot going on in the cycle right now, but we definitely want to cover this before the cycle inevitably moves on. As you guys know, we previously talked about the California recall election for governor. We I went over the, the field, the Republican candidates running to replace Democrat incumbent Gavin Newsom. That election was this Tuesday that just passed, September 14th. And let's recap the results right now. I'm sure you guys are all well aware. And these are going to change, obviously, as more votes pour in. But with 78% of the vote reporting in, the vote on no, the vote against recalling Newsom, is the overwhelming favorite with 64%. That's about 6.1 million votes. The yes votes have 36%. That's 3.5 million. So that's a total of 9.6 million votes out of a total number of about 22 million registered voters thus far. So Gavin Newsom, by all accounts, has survived his recall by a two-to-one margin. It was not, he obviously did not get recalled, and it wasn't as close as some people hoped it would be. Again, the margin may shrink a little bit over the coming weeks, as th- these votes that are coming in immediately were the mail-in ballots, you know, the ones they spent months and months collecting, and that they will spend another month collecting after the date that obviously are going to lean for Newsom. The in-person votes that more likely lean towards uh, recalling him are going to be, those are the votes that are going to be coming in more recently that may shrink the margin a bit. But there's no way of spinning this. Newsom won, quote-unquote, won this election. I want to talk about a few aspects of this. Just break down what you need to know about what this really means. Because there is no shortage of the mainstream media trying to determine for themselves what this means. And when they try to extrapolate lessons, all they're doing is just reinforcing their own worldview and their own beliefs through the results of these elections. Even if that's not really what they mean. They'll lie to you through their teeth about what this election really means. But I just got to talk about a few things. First and foremost, of course... In the field of replacement candidates, there were 46 total candidates ranging from prominent names to total nobodies just running for the lols. Longtime radio host, author, and Fox News guest Larry Elder was the decisive first place candidate. He crushed the rest of the field. He got just over 47% of the vote, 2.4 million votes for him to replace Newsom had Newsom been recalled. The next highest candidate was a Democrat a YouTuber named Kevin Paffrath, who got just under 10% at 500,000 votes. In third place is former San Diego mayor Kevin Falconer. We talked about him before. 8.6%, 440,000 votes. And in fourth place, another total no-name Democrat. I have no idea who this guy is. Brandon Ross. Fourth place, 5.6%, just under 290,000 votes. And everybody else farther and farther below that. So I want to talk about a few things here. First off, of course, Larry Elder dominated, as was widely expected. He was the top candidate. Uh, He had a lot of, you know, free media coverage due to his candidacy, name recognition due to his longtime radio career. Kevin Paffrath coming in second. Uh, I want to talk about this for a moment. This is something that blows my mind. But when you look at previous patterns, you understand why this happened. He first came to prominence in a single poll by Survey USA. This is a, a very strange pollster, and I'll come back to that in a moment, that released the first ever poll showing Newsom losing the recall. This was, I think, about a month before the recall. They had 51% in favor of recalling him and only 40% against it. And that was the poll that had everybody freaking out. Oh my God, Newsom could be recalled. And Pathrath came in second in that poll, I believe, behind Larry Elder. Yes, second. I have the poll right here. Or Actually, no, correction. He came in first in that poll. He got 27% in that poll. Elder came in second with 23%. And so a lot of people said, oh, could this 29-year-old Democrat YouTuber be the next governor of California? What they did here is really sleazy, and I can't tell if this was on purpose or not. They listed all Republican candidates. Again, there were seven major Republican candidates in total, all seven Republican candidates who were running for governor, and they listed alongside those Republicans one Democrat, one Democrat. That Democrat is Mr. YouTuber, Pathrath himself. So naturally what you're going to see is that all the Democrats responding to this poll are going to pool all their support collectively behind the single Democrat. To show, obviously, yeah, there are Democrats who don't support of Newsom's performance and would like to see him recalled but replaced with another Dem. 
So they all just coalesce behind Pathrath, so he comes in first. So naturally, people say, oh, he came in first. What does this mean? This happened before in 2018, the U.S. Senate race in California, which was hysterical. I've talked a little bit about this before. That was when Dianne Feinstein got reelected, and she had a handful of Democrat challengers, including uh, former state Senate minority leader Kevin DeLeon, who was a hardcore socialist, you know, far to her left, hoping to get, you know, kind of the, the Bernie base, the, the grassroots uh, socialist base. And there were a lot of other scattershot Republicans who also ran total no names. Nobody with recognition ran whatsoever. And the same exact pollster, Survey USA, conducted a poll where they listed a bunch of Democrats, Feinstein, DeLeon, and others, and one Republican. So said one Republican got 18% of the vote to Feinstein's 38. So he came in second, which in the primary, for the primary polling, I mean, which means this candidate would go against Feinstein in the runoff election. That candidate, that Republican, was a charming chap by the name of Patrick Little. Jacob, do you remember the name Patrick Little? Yes, I do. Very infamous figure on the alt-right. One of the very few, you know, in 2018, the media and the left-wing media all try to say, oh, there's an epidemic of white nationalist, neo-Nazi, Holocaust denier, anti-Semites, Hitler reincarnations running for office everywhere. There were like six in the entire country running for office in 2018. One of those six was, or eight, excuse me, I, I should know, I wrote an article on this for American Greatness way back when, eight actual neo-Nazis running for office, and they made it sound like there were hundreds of them. One of those eight was Patrick Little, uh, I guess a former Marine, he apparently served in Afghanistan, who... His entire campaign platform was expel all Jews from the state of California. He would literally go around with sandwich boards saying, like, Jews rape kids, expel all Jews, a Holocaust denier, of course. And he came in first because, again, at this time, this poll was in, like, April of 2018. Nobody knew who he was yet. They just All the Republican voters in the poll just saw one Republican and said, oh, we'll vote for him. So he came in first. So then all the headlines say, neo-Nazi comes in first in California poll Republicans. This is Donald Trump's America. It was just so fake. But, like, this proves to me, we all know polls are garbage, especially after 2016. But they're even more so garbage when you think that all it, when you really all it takes is one poll, one faulty poll, whether intentionally or unintentionally, singling out a single candidate of one party versus like a dozen candidates of the other party. So naturally with a the plurality, they come in first, quote unquote, and their candidacy is boosted. After that single poll, Kevin Paffrath, kind of almost like Andrew Yang in the 2020 presidential primary, was getting all this attention. The day of the recall, Paffrath, a Democrat, by the way, he's a registered Democrat, was being interviewed on Fox News before the recall. Not Larry Elder, not anybody else. <laughs> They were interviewing a Democrat because, oh, who's this? Who's this YouTuber? And he, my coworkers were like, who in the world is this pencil neck YouTuber? Uh, it was ridiculous. But yeah, the, these pollsters are total jokes. We should not take them seriously, especially when they are outright influencing. That's influencing an election right there. Again, Paffrath didn't win, but he came in a, a respectable second place thanks to one poll. I, I'm sure his check to Survey USA is in the mail right now. <laughs> But moving on to the, the less entertaining aspects of the recall, the California GOP is a complete joke. I wrote a book on this. I've said this for years. The California Republican Party is non-existent in the state of California. And this recall is just the latest proof that, as the saying goes, Republicans never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And that goes double for the California Republican Party. As I said before in my recap of the primary field, their favorite from the beginning was Kevin Falconer. I've talked about this guy pro-amnesty, pro-gay marriage, pro-abortion, raised taxes on his city while he was mayor of San Diego, believes in global warming, is pro-gun control, is against Trump. And this guy, I described him as the Jeb Bush, the primary, in the sense that he was the party favorite that they all wanted. I kind of take that back a little bit. This guy makes Jeb Bush look like Ted Cruz, all right? Complete Democrat in sheep's clothing. And the Republican Party was ready to officially endorse him at their convention before the recall. Then, of course, Larry Elder jumped into the race pretty late. He jumped in in, like, I think mid-July, right, right before a week before the deadline. And just barred, in their minds, he barged onto the stage and stole frontrunner status from Falconer. And ultimately, at the behest of two uh, RNC members from California, Sean Steele and Harmie Dillon, who issued a statement right before the convention where they were going to vote on the endorsement, they encouraged delegates to vote for no endorsement, meaning the party wouldn't pick one candidate or the other, which can be either or. Friends of mine, I was talking about this with friends of mine from California, who thought it was a mistake. It made the party look indecisive. Others said that it was the right move because it didn't alienate. It wouldn't risk alienating supporters of any Republican. They would all still turn out for their candidates, so Larry Elder or whatnot. 
But they wanted it to be Falconer. They did not want Larry Elder. And again, this is a California statewide equivalent of if Trump had lost in 2016 or arguably even what was happening already with Trump after Trump lost, quote unquote, in 2020. The, the Republican establishment is saying, oh, OK, enough of these outsiders. It's time to get the adults back in the room, guys. You know, we need the we need those with experience, the professionals here. Sure enough. Kevin Falconer himself, who is a declared candidate for the 2022 general election, regular election as well, tweeted this the day after the election, quote, I want to thank my supporters. You all know me. I've never been one to be part of the circus. I've been the one who comes in to end the circus. That's just who I am. <laughs> oh, man. California's problems aren't going away, he says. And I'm proud that we ran a campaign based on experience and solutions. You mean solutions like tearing down the border wall between San Diego and Tijuana? Because according to you, while you were mayor, San Diego and Tijuana are the same city, right, Kevin? They're part of one, quote, giant mega region moving forward together, end quote. That was your quote in 2017, Kevin. He goes on in a, a follow-up tweet to say, The path to victory in California is to win by addition, bringing folks together across the spectrum. Oh, how nice. The race became dominated by national partisan politics. I trust the democratic process and know Californians deserve a governor focused on solving California's problems. And that's that's one of the many talking points being issued by the left, being repeated by a so-called Republican here, that oh, Larry Elder lost this election because he made this uh, a national referendum on the national culture war and national issues. That's not true. I, as I said in my recap of the primary, Larry Elder jumped in the race announcing his main issues, again, having grown up in uh, South Central Los Angeles, his issues would be crime, homelessness, and immigration. Issues that people care about. People care about the homeless shooting up on the on the sidewalks and needle having to step around needles. People care about rampant crime and hoodlums, shall we say, being able to just walk in and out of CVSs with bags of stuff, knowing that if it's under $1,000, they won't go to jail. And Elder talked about that. But the mainstream, the left-wing media is trying to make it sound like, oh, he just turned this into, you know, a California equivalent of the 2016 election, which, again, is, is just objectively not true, but that, that happens to stop the media from lying anyway. The bottom line here being, of course, that the California Republican Party has not learned their lesson. They are going to continue dumping on their own voters. The party leadership, Jessica Patterson, that's the name of the chairwoman, who was all in for Falconer and all of Falconer's acolytes the, among the delegates at the party convention, are going to start wagging their fingers at Larry Elder voters saying, oh, you, you should know better voting for some outsider radical with no experience. You need to listen to us. We know what's better for you. All this is going to do is lead to more Trump voters leaving the California Republican Party, disgruntled Trump voters, because as has been said, in 2020, President Trump got just over 6 million votes in the state of California. That is more votes than in any state in 2020, more than even Texas where he won. He got 5.8 million there in that same election. That's more votes than any Republican has ever received in a single state in American history. There are more Trump voters in California than in any state in the country. And in the recall vote, again, 9.6 million who have voted so far, 3.5 million voted to recall. That's approximately 2.5 million less. And again, these numbers will increase. But for right now, that's 2.5 million less than the total number of voters for Trump. That's at least 6 million votes you could have turned out if the California Republican Party worked hard enough. Friends of mine were telling me there were no mailers. There was no door knocking. There was no phone banking. There was no emailing. And I, we know uh, we talk about how annoying that stuff is. I don't know if you get any of those things, those spamming your phone or email, Jacob, but friends of mine do. But California GOP put in no work once Falconer was essentially relegated to D-list status by Elder. They threw in the towel and said they weren't going to put any more, more effort. Yeah, if they had turned out as many voters as showed up for Trump, they would have dethroned Newsom because Newsom didn't get as many votes as – or the the yes or the no vote to, um, to his ouster didn't get as many votes as Trump did, did it? Exactly. It has not, and it will not. And again, it didn't have to be it didn't have to be a cap of just six million. There obviously are plenty of independent voters. That's NPP in California, no party preference. Independent voters and even a chunk of Democrats, those who voted for Paffrath and others, who were dissatisfied with Newsom. You could have easily gone over six million. You could have got six point one, six point two. And again, I personally don't know. Again, as votes are rolling in right now, I think even that coalition at full force at 2020 turnout levels. Might not have been enough to beat Newsom, but it would have been enough to give him a serious headache and make it a closer margin than this. But they didn't put in any effort, and the result is going to be more of the same. As people will tell you, the California Republican Party uh, registration numbers have been declining significantly, both in terms of percentage and total numbers of voters. Since 2003, at least, it was consistently declining in terms of its percentage of the share of the vote in California. 
at one point ultimately falling below. In 2018, the California Republican Party fell below no party preference in total number of voters for the first time ever at 24% to no party preferences 27%. Now, in 2021, this is interesting. The latest voter registration numbers show Republicans did actually increase their total number of voters for the first time since 2005. They increased the number of voters they had from 4.7 million to 5.3 million. But in, because of the percentages and the rates at which Democrats increased, the percentage stayed the exact same at 24.0% over the course of three years. No party preference did decline by about 4% from 5.4 million to 5.1 million, 27 to 23%. But a lot of those voters ultimately broke for other parties, you know, Libertarian, Green, what have you, or went to the Democrats. So Republicans are now, once again, the second largest voting bloc in the state behind Democrats, but they're still at number nearly two to one, 24% Republicans to 46.5% Democrats. So, yes, it was always an uphill battle. It wasn't always – it was most likely always going to be a Newsom victory. But you could have at least put some serious effort into this. You could have mobilized the Trump base, but you didn't because you party leadership folks, Jessica Patterson and the rest of you, you wanted your moderates. You wanted your dem lights. Despite the narratives going on that, oh, this is a defeat for Trumpism, and we'll come back to that in a moment, there are at least two articles I found that summarize what I think is one of the true lessons to take away from this here. One is from Spectator World by Philip Nieto, and the other is from, of all things, the LA Times. And the Spectator World piece is titled, quote, Gavin Newsom won in California, but so did Trumpism. And the second one, it's Larry Elder's California GOP now. What's his next move? <laughs> and the cover photo of that is uh, Larry Elder's supporter holding this giant cardboard cutout of just Larry Elder's face. The bottom line being, they both make the same case that I basically just made a little while ago. He crushed the Republican field. Yes, the recall lost, but he decisively won more votes than the rest of the field combined. All the other six major Republican candidates, Falconer, John Cox, Doug Osi, Bruce Jenner, Ted Gaines, and Kevin Kiley combined got 18% of the vote. Larry Elder got 47%. In the previous recall with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, when Schwarzenegger came in first, he got 48% when the next highest candidate, the Democratic incumbent Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante, got 31%, so a 17-point margin. Larry Elder's margin over his next highest competitor was nearly 40 points. So a decisive win by the grassroots base over the preferred establishment candidates. And what this really means, again, the Spectator World piece suggests this, you know, especially when you look at the youth organizations like the California College Republicans that are overwhelmingly pro-Trump that the party leadership sooner or later is going to have to cave and admit that the Trump vote is not going anywhere just because Trump is out of office. It's stronger than ever in California as it is in any other state. One man who did get it right is President Donald Trump. The Tuesday before the recall, one week before, in an interview on Newsmax, Trump predicted that Newsom would ultimately win because the system with the mail-in voting and the ballot harvesting in California is so rigged that they were never going to have a chance. And he was right. And he normally doesn't make predictions. But when he makes predictions, for example, a previous, the last time he predicted a Republican loss that nobody wanted to hear but he was right on was 2017. The Alabama special election. Jacob, you remember that race when Roy Moore was the Republican nominee. The primary, the night of the primary before Moore defeated Luther Strange, Trump said at the rally for Strange, he said, you know, uh, and this other guy, I guess a lot of people like him, but if he wins the nomination, I don't know. I think he may lose the election. And I can respect this a lot because obviously Trump is a motivator. He knows how to work a crowd and throw red meat. But at the same time, he doesn't sugarcoat things. He's not going to lie to make boomers feel good. When he sees the writing on the wall, as a pragmatic businessman, he's going to say it like it is. So I respect to Trump for calling it out and not being like a lot of these other pundits who say, this is it. We're going to make California red. Let's go. It was never going to happen. And Trump knew that. Now, here's the right take on the California recall. And I've seen so many headlines before and after the election. This is proof that rejecting Trumpism still works. Clearly, this means voters do support vaccine mandates and lockdowns and forced injections and being restrained in their homes. Clearly, yes, this is an indication that Joe Biden still has strong political clout because Biden went out and campaigned for Newsom. They're trying to claim, oh, this is proof that Biden is still really popular even Afghan after Afghanistan. The reason Larry Elder lost is because he focused too much on national issues in the culture war. Schwarzenegger at least focused on local issues. That was actually spoken by New York Times reporter during the live coverage of the recall results. Spoiler alert, short answer, no, 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 and no. None of those are true. It's all BS. It's California, all right, period. That's all she wrote. 
nothing, no lessons to be taken away from this mean anything because it's California. They even tried to say, uh, one of the other New York Times live coverage reports by Lisa Lehrer said, uh, quote, I'd caution against extrapolating too many national political lessons from this recall. Is it telling us something about pandemic politics? Sure. Is the recall also a highly idiosyncratic process? Yes. And once again, no. Because the fact that it's a recall doesn't matter. Yes, recall elections and special elections are abnormal. They lead to unusual circumstances you otherwise might see not see. Again, the Alabama Senate election. Nobody really believed Alabama was turning blue just because Doug Jones won. He still got crushed three years later by uh by Tommy Tuberville. But the bottom line is this is California, okay? It's a deep blue state. You could literally have Jesus Christ himself as a Republican nominee and Adolf Hitler resurrected from the dead as the Democrat nominee, and Hitler would win with 60% of the vote in California because that's all it is. It's, domi- it's dominated by D, by the blue crowd, all right? None of this matters. Just because California voters say, oh, yes, yes, inject me, inject me more, give me as many injections as possible, doesn't mean that the rest of the country feels that way. The only lesson to be taken away is this. All of these lessons are garbage. None of them mean anything. They're all wrong. It's just the media tooting their own horns to make themselves sound right and reinforce what they already know. What this means is that California is the future of our country if we don't stop voter fraud right now. If we don't put a stop to mail-in voting, California mailed ballots out to every single, all one of those 22 million registered voters in the state automatically. Ballot harvesting. Third parties were allowed to go out and collect ballots. And obviously... These third parties are not really third parties. They're affiliated with either the Democrats or the Republicans. They're going to go in their voter databases and see who's a registered Democrat. They're going to go pick up those ballots. They're going to encourage them at the door to fill out their ballots if you haven't already or give it to us and we'll fill it out for you. Yes, that is a thing. This is real. This all happens in California since it was legalized in 2016. And then subsequently, when you combine that with mass immigration, as California has, which is also what they want for the rest of the country, you create an unstoppable Democrat mega majority you know for the longest time the california democratic party had a two-thirds 66 percent majority in both the state assembly and state senate which has been dubbed a super majority after 2020 they rose to three-fourths 75 percent majorities which the la times dubbed a mega majority overwhelmingly veto proof overwhelmingly filibuster proof the republicans are irrelevant in the state of california and you see what they're trying to do, too, is they're trying to encourage. They're saying, oh, clearly uh, the, the only way forward is if the Republican Party moderates and, and moves more to the left. You know, again, that's what Kevin Falconer said. I saw one uh, article from Cal Matters talking about the results of this election, and they referred back to 2020, where, of course, in 2018, seven House seats and a whole bunch of state legislative seats were lost to the Democrats after they first put their ballot harvesting into effect for the first time in 2018. And then in 2020, uh, about, I think, four how seats were taken back, all seats that were lost in 2018. And this Cal Matters article declared, well, the GOP successfully won these seats back by running a slate of more ethnically diverse candidates. And in the very next sentence, the article says, Larry Elder came along and ruined that. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, so a, a black man being the front runner, who, by the way, would have been the first black governor in California in history if he had won. Because California, in all its history, for all its diversity and acceptance, has not had a black governor yet. Democrats are probably going to look to change that soon just so they can claim that milestone for themselves. But I digress. A black man being the front runner because he's a Republican, because he's a conservative, not because he's you know a squish Republican like these Republicans who won, because he's a Trump-supporting Republican. Oh, that ruins the ethnic diversity, which just further proves, obviously, they're talking about both sides of their mouth when it comes to ethnicity, ethnic diversity. They don't care about that. They want Republicans who are ideologically diverse, which basically just means they're democrat light. And that, again, is the future they want for the country, a dominant, unbeatable, mega-majority Democrat rule with an irrelevant and center-left Republican Party. Well, speaking of immigration, I was looking at the Maryland results from the last uh, gubernatorial race when Larry Hogan just crushed Ben Jealous. And um, I mean, for those of you that know Maryland, it's like a two to one ratio with Democrats to Republicans. But the area around D.C. where there's a lot of first generation Americans, it went solidly blue. While the rest of the state went red, while Democrats in the rest of the state, you know, voted overwhelmingly red, this one area, it still goes solidly blue. Like they had no idea that, uh, hey, uh, nobody likes this guy. We're all voting for the Republican. But that's the way it is. You know, it doesn't matter who the candidate is. doesn't matter what the issues are. First generation immigrants vote two-thirds, three-fourths Democrats. It's been that way 
you know, uh, since the Civil War. That's the way it's been with every immigrant group. And that's why the more first-generation Americans we can bring in, the Democrats know, the more Democratic voters that they're going to have. Exactly. And that's one more thing, too, just to end on this note. It's good that you brought up, Marilyn, in this argument of, oh, the California Republican Party needs to become more moderate. They point to Maryland and Massachusetts and I think Vermont as well, uh, three northeastern traditionally blue states. They go blue in every presidential election that all have Republican governors and they're moderates like Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker. And I don't know the Vermont guy's name, but they're all saying like, oh, these are moderate Republicans. Clearly, this works. And once again, I have said no. Just because moderate Republicans get elected in Massachusetts doesn't mean a moderate Republican will get elected in California because California has a significantly higher immigration population, first generation or otherwise. And as you said, Maryland, portions of Maryland have a similar population. But Massachusetts is still overwhelmingly multi-generation Americans. It's more it's a much more ethnically homogenous state, as is Vermont, as is the general New England area. So you cannot compare. That's apples and oranges. You can't say, oh, because California or because Massachusetts elects a Charlie Baker, all we need is a Charlie Baker to run in California. If Kevin Falconer finally gets what he's always wanted and wins the nomination in 2022, he's going to get crushed as well. He will be painted, and, and there are article, some articles that admitted this as well from the left. Any Republican would have been painted as literally Hitler. If it was Kevin Falconer or if it was Larry Elder, or if it was John Cox, the senile perennial candidate who had no business running, who was campaigning. I didn't even mention this in the previous time we talked about this. This guy is such a clown. He drove around the state in a bus with a literal live grizzly bear. <laughs> Obviously heavily sedated for campaign appearances, but he would go out you know, to the crowds with this big old bear. And the, written on the bus is the slogan, Beauty and the Beast, with him specifically saying, his campaign saying, the bear is the beauty and John Cox is. But whoever they ran, whoever they ran, Joe Biden could run as a Republican in California and he would be called literally Hitler. But of course, they're not going to listen. The California Republican Party is going to continue ignoring its voters and you're just going to see more voters leave. The party's going to get smaller and California is going to become a complete one party state. As I said, that's the future they want for all of America, the same future that is awaiting California. But we're already seeing signs that America as a nation has become a banana republic. Well, with everyone knows what's going on with Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, what um, the book alleged by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. He allegedly, before the election, called up the leading general of China, Li Zhaocheng, and so he, apparently he was trying to reassure Zhaocheng that the United States was not going to surprise attack China because he had allegedly received intel saying that China thought that America was going to launch a surprise attack on them, and he didn't want China to launch a preemptive strike. So he calls him up and says, hey, I will let you know if we're going to attack you. It's not just going to come out. It's not just going to be out of the blue. I will call you up and I'll let you know, give you a heads up that we're going to surprise attack you. Now, he hasn't denied this. His spokesman hasn't denied this. And he, the, claimed, he claimed that Milley was within his duties to talk to his Chinese counterparts. Well, the thing is he hasn't commented one way or the other on the specific comments, but he claimed that the call, everything he said in the call was within his specific duties. He recently said, I was just doing my job. This all, call, uh, this all falls under the purview of my position as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Bob Woodward and Robert Costa have said they stand by their reporting, that they completely stand by it. There were allegedly 15 people in the room with him. So out of 15 people, you can get a couple of anonymous sources out of the White House to let you know what was going on. So I 100% I, I believe that he said everything that the book claims that he said. Oh, yeah. And you know that a call like this especially, there is a transcript somewhere. A Exa transcript exists somewhere. Exactly. And it, it, they could release the transcript and uh, you know prove to the American people – that he said everything he said is perfectly legitimate because he allegedly did clear the call with the secretary of defense before he made the call. But, you know, he could have just said, hey, I'm going to call the general up and just, you know, reassure that we're not going to, you know, that we're still on good terms or whatever. And the secretary of defense could have said, OK, that's fine. You know, that's perfectly acceptable. But according to acting secretary of defense at the time, Christopher Miller, he did not authorize that type of call. But not only this, but then after the January 6th riot, Milley calls up the same general again, and he reassures him that the United States is not going to fall, that the United States is not in peril. Where everything is fine, but democracy can be sloppy sometimes, yeah, according to the book. Democracy can be sloppy sometimes. Can you imagine for decades now, the United States has been trying to spread democracy abroad. We've been trying to lead by example <laughs> and uh, with boots on the ground abroad and spread our American liberal democracy to other countries and try to convince China that they need to adopt our liberal democracy. 
And he, here you got the head of the U.S. military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, calling up the head of the Chinese military and having to reassure him that the United States isn't falling apart. It's just that democracy is messy, is sloppy sometimes. I can imagine that Chinese general was thinking, well, why don't you just adopt the kind of government we have? Our, <laughs> our government isn't sloppy. We're very ordered. We don't have that. We don't have stuff like this happen. Revolutions don't happen here. And if they do, we just make them disappear. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We just teen them and square them. You know, I mentioned they could release the transcript, but they don't have any reason to release the transcript because nobody's going to make them release the transcript. With Trump, the media could howl and pitch a fit and they mm -hmm. immediately had to release the transcript whenever he called the Ukrainian president. But imagine a general calls up calls another general of another country and says, hey, if we're going to attack, if our president decides that we're going to attack you, if we have a declaration of war on your country, I'm going to give you a call and let you know when we're going to attack. I'm pretty this sure is, that that literally is the definition of aiding and abetting an enemy nation, which is treason. Yeah. I mean, if that had happened, if he had called him up and let him know that we we're going to launch a surprise attack, he would deserve the death penalty because that is yep. that is the That's absolute the definition of treason. Mm hmm. And for him to call the second time and call him again and let him know that, hey, you know, we're good, everything's good, it shows that we don't have a country that's governed by a president, a Congress, and a Supreme Court. The three branches of government don't exist anymore. We, what we have is a cabal of people who live in and around Washington, D.C., who run the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, all these bureaucracies. They are the ones who are the permanent government. They're in office perpetually. It doesn't matter who is elected president. It doesn't matter who's elected to Congress. It doesn't matter how many committee hearings they have. It doesn't matter how many of them are pulled up in front of Congress to answer for what they do. They are the permanent government. It's like Vindman said whenever, um, whenever he was testifying before Congress. He said, uh, I did what I did because Trump was messing up our foreign policy. I was defending the, quote, interagency consensus. The interagency consensus. The interagency consensus is what runs this country. People wonder who's behind Biden, who's running Biden. Well, there is no one person. People say, well, I think Obama is actually calling the shots. Well, I think Susan Rice Susan is Rice, calling yeah. the shots or these other people calling the shots. No, the reality is. Everyone is calling the shots. They're all sitting around. You have different interests who run the country. There, you got big tech. You've got the Department of Defense. You got DHS. You've got the the welfare departments. Uh, you got HUD. You've got all these different interests. You got the ethnic minority interests. They all have their representatives in government. It's kind of like a model UN. They all have their representatives that they send to government that are working through the Democratic Party. And when they elect a Democratic president, the president is just a figurehead. He's yep. kind of like a monarch. He's kind of like the British monarch. He just, you know, he just sits down. Oh, what do you need me to sign today? Oh, he signs oh. fancy declarations and he gives public appearances. And he, he and signs whatever they put in front of him on his desk. And yeah. at all times he doesn't even know what he's signing. And he doesn't care because he just does what he's told. He's the figurehead. And then they are actually the ones who run the government. Even Congress doesn't have much say so in what goes on in government. Exactly. And so in a situation like this, this is why whenever they broke the story, I think it was the Atlantic that broke the story. They wrote about it as if Millie is a hero. He yep. saved democracy from this rogue president who got, who got elected by a bunch of rubes who really don't have any business voting. I remember whenever I was working in a think tank in D.C., this was, this was a few months after I got to D.C. This was during when you mentioned the Roy Moore election. This was during that election, and uh, we were discussing the, the allegations and everything in the office, and this guy blurts out, the people of Alabama should be disenfranchised. And he you know, just kind of let the mask slip. And this is a Republican uh, that said this. And this is the way they think. The people around D.C., they don't think they – they would prefer if we could just take the vote away from people out in the – you know, away from the peasants out in the heartland. Those rednecks, those those plumbers, those, you know, those, those working class stiffs who because, don't know what's best for them. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be the same resort – it's going to be the same result no matter whether they vote or not. And if they do vote, sometimes they happen to get people in that ends up delaying the uh, the agenda of the interagency um, consensus. The interagency consensus. So, like Trump, Trump just pushed things back four years. Now that he's out of the way, now they can get back to running the government like they did under Obama. Mm -hmm. At least with Obama, they had somebody in there who was kind of on their team that um, would exert a little bit of authority, who wasn't senile. With Biden, he doesn't. He doesn't. You have, you know, he's not all there. Can't no. even, uh, I mean, he can't give a speech. He can't even uh, give a coherent speech half the time. So in a situation like this, then the media, certainly, they see what Millie did and they said, yeah, that's perfectly acceptable. And CNN recently released an article, uh, which is interesting because Millie has said that everything he did was part of his job, part of his job description. CNN put out an article today, an opinion piece saying that, 
what he did was acceptable when you consider who was president, but we need to kind of be careful about what we let generals do in the future. And, you know, we don't want generals to think that they can keep doing this. But you got Millie over here saying that everything I did was perfectly acceptable part of my job. And you haven't really seen any pushback at all from the mainstream media against this, saying that this was uh, this was wrong. He should resign. He should be fired. Vindman actually said that if everything in the book is correct, that he should be let go, that, uh, that Biden should fire him. Vindman but, said that? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Vindman said I mean, that. I was seeing another thing with um on MSNBC with Joe Scarborough's show, uh, Miles Taylor, you know, the deep state busboy who wrote that anonymous article for the New York Times, became a big hero. He came out and said uh, Millie was a patriot. You know, he said what he did was patriotic. So, I mean, I'm surprised to hear Vindman of all people say that. I mean, if nothing else, I think maybe Vindman would say that because that's another instance of, like you said, letting the mask slip. It's one thing if it comes from a total underling, you know, minimum wage underling like a Miles Taylor or a Vindman, but to come from the top guy in the U.S. military to say something like that, uh, allegedly, that's why, and I think that's why he is not acknowledging it. He's defending it, but he's refusing to admit that it happened because even he is aware that it does create a bad look for him. Well, this goes back to our understanding of what the United States is as a country. These people, they believe that these bureaucrats serve the American people. And this was one of the things that Hillary Clinton tweeted during whenever Trump was saying that I can fire whoever I want to fire. She tweeted, these people don't work for you. They serve the American people. This was during his first impeachment scam. And this is how they feel. This is the way they feel. The permanent bureaucracy, the bureaucracy isn't the fourth branch of government. The bureaucracy is the government. These people are the government. The three branches of government are just, you know, it's kind of like monarchs. Like I said, it's just a figurehead. you got countries that still hang on to their monarch so they can make the people feel like they have a head of state. We still hang on to our president to make people feel like they have a head of state. It makes people feel good. They can vote. They can, you know, if they get mad about something, they can, then the, the deep state can just tell them, well, let your voices be heard. Go vote. So that quiets them down. Okay, we can go let our voices be heard. They go vote. They vote. Nothing changes. And playing a game of pin the tail on the puppet master is it can be fun for a while, you know, for nothing else, compiling a, a list of enemies. You know, it's easy enough to ask, especially with someone as incompetent and incoherent as Joe Biden, who's really pulling his strings? Is it Susan Rice? There's a difference between a strategist like a David Axelrod, a Carl Rove, a Steve Bannon, or a Susan Rice. There's a difference between that and those who are actually pulling the strings. You know, those are the people who more kind of run policy messaging strategy for the administration, like a public, like a PR firm, basically. The people who actually are pulling the strings are completely faceless. It's like in the movie JFK, you know, when he's talking about the deep state plot to allegedly assassinate President Kennedy, he says, you know, there's been no vote, nothing's on paper, nobody's guilty, everybody's innocent. It's as old as a firing squad with six live rounds and one blank and nobody knows who fires the blank you know it's 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 a government by a shadow committee of a bunch of faceless bureaucrat swamp creatures and that's far more terrifying because you can't put a name or a face to any of those people but see let's let's take him at, let's take Millie at his word in the book let's take uh, the book at its word take Millie at his word he genuinely believed that Trump was going to launch a surprise attack on China to divert attention away from the from the virus away from the riots away from his perceived failure as a president Let's just take him at his word. We have a stopgap in the Constitution for that. It's called the 25th Amendment. That's right. If the president is decapacitated mentally, physically, if he is, uh, is, er is acting erratically, the, the founders put that in the Constitution and the, uh, the early Americans ratified it so that the rest of the other members of government of the executive branch can come together and remove him from office. And Millie – isn't part of that guy. He isn't part of that plan. He's just the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He does not form. A, he's not the vice president. He's not any. He's not a cabinet member. So he isn't part of that. Whether or not the president is incapacitated and can't do his job, that's not up for him to decide. That's not up here for him to discuss. That's not up for him to question. And uh, but yeah, this is this is what happens when you have a country that doesn't have a constitution that it follows anymore. And. Just as another example, uh, we've got the now we've got Biden uh, wanting every company with at least 100 employees to force their employees to get vaccinated. Private companies, not just federal, not just federal agencies. Private companies of 100 employees or more. And this ties into in, into the broader you know the broader topic of of Millie as well because it shows that the government is at the position at this point where they can do anything they want to and they don't feel any pushback. I mean, you were saying that you think that uh, Millie is going to get fired over this. You think Biden is going to. We were talking off the air about this, and I think this is an interesting theory going around. I mean, obviously, this comes on the heels of Afghanistan when the entirety of the Biden Defense Department and State Department is under the microscope between Lloyd Austin, Anthony Blinken, 
Jake Sullivan, even the national security advisor, and yes, Mark Milley. Everyone is just getting criticized, again, not just by Republicans, by even some Democrats. You know, Seth Moulton, the Democrat from Massachusetts, visited Afghanistan secretly, and since then he's come back and he's been on making the rounds on news saying, yeah, this is a disaster. I'm a Democrat, and this is a disaster. Someone's got to answer for this. And I said this is kind of like the Cuomo situation. You know, again, former Governor Cuomo was originally under the microscope for the nursing home scandal, where over 10,000 senior citizens in New York were killed, killed by his policy of sending COVID patients into nursing homes. It's been speculated, I, I certainly, I think it's a very interesting theory, that ultimately Cuomo being taken down over Me Too allegations, whether they're fake or real or not, allowed the focus to be taken away. Because remember, once that started, no one talked about nursing homes anymore, other than like Fox News every now and then. No one was talking about nursing homes. They were talking about Me Too, Me Too, Me Too. And he ultimately went down. He didn't, he, re, he didn't resign because of the nursing home thing. He resigned because of the allegations against women. And I think it might be the same thing here with Millie. They are going to work, I think they could, for the sake of sacrificing a lamb to the slaughter, if you will. They're going to let Millie take the fall for this one, force him to resign or whatever, for this, for the China thing. Not for the failure in Afghanistan, because if he was forced to resign for the failure in Afghanistan, which actually had a body count, you know, as bad as this call to China is, it's literal treason and yes, punishable by death. Nobody is dead as a result of these phone calls. People are dead, Americans and Afghan civilians alike. And Americans are still trapped in Afghanistan, by the way, almost a month later. Because of the failures of Millie and Austin and Blinken and Sullivan and the rest of them. If Millie goes down for this, they can say, oh, we had to let him go for this. You know, no one else is implicated. Blinken and Austin are not implicated in this China thing. So that way, and with that being, and you and I, again, we were talking offline about this. You said they don't feel the need to let him be sacrificed. They don't need to feel the need to please the political opposition. We succeeded. We got him fired. They just replace him with somebody else. They'd replace him with another woke general who's all about CRT, who's right in line with Austin and the rest of them. So it wouldn't really be a victory, but it would be a hollow victory that finally memory hole the disaster of Afghanistan, in my well, opinion. No, I don't think that they would fire Millie. Millie wouldn't go down for what happened in Afghanistan. That was mainly on uh, on Blinken. That was mainly Secretary of State. But on this particular issue, he I've, I'm confident that he's going to stay in. He's not going to be uh, he's not going to be dismissed. For the simple reason that he has proven to Biden and Biden's allies that he is woke. And that's what's going to be his. And he played his cards from the very start. Now, he's not I don't think he's just play acting. I think he actually believes this stuff. He actually believes in white rage and stuff like that. Because and we know this because a part of the book during the riots, the height of the Black Lives Matter riots, Trump wanted to send in troops and put them down. And he got into a shouting match with Millie. And Millie was insisting that there's nothing to this. It's just a couple of hundred people out uh, breaking some windows. This isn't like an insurrection. He pointed to Abraham Lincoln and said it's not like Fort Sumter is being fired on. He said this isn't like the 1968 riots. And then he showed he, – he dropped the mask and he said, well, well, these people have been – they have a lot of pent-up anger that they're trying to let out. So and let them burn down half the country. Does let them burn down. Well, in, this is the thing. He's saying like the country is not burning down. There's just a few hundred people. There's only been riots in a couple of cities that are uh, significant. These people have a lot of pent up rage. They've only killed about two dozen people. No big deal. But this goes back to uh, – yeah, this goes back to the, the belief about the, the historiography on the 1968 riots. The official narrative on the 1968 riots – is that they were justified. That is the official institutional academic narrative on those rights is that they were completely justified yeah, because after of MLK the way got shot and after other, he got yeah. shot and, and even the Watts riot in 1965, that that was completely justified because of all the pent-up anger that black Americans had toward the United States, that they were perfectly justified in killing those people and burning that all those buildings down and rioting, destroying their neighborhoods. All that was justified. And so um, Millie has a political science degree from Princeton. Of course. And he's got uh, – he also graduated from Columbia, two of the most liberal and uh, two of the most liberal universities in the country. And we're going to get to Columbia University for our main topic. That's going to be – that's going to feature prominently in our main topic. But Princeton is ranked number one by U.S. News and World Report in history. Of course, the history departments history, are quote controlled 90 percent by leftists. About 25 percent of historians are admittedly – Marxist and sympathize with Marxism. So Millie's got a political science degree from Princeton. He went to, he went to Columbia University. The narrative that he would have been fed about the 1960s riots would have been that they were justified because black Americans had so much pent-up anger that they just exploded. With these, with the Black Lives Matter riots, whatever justification there is to that narrative, which is mostly false, that was not the case with Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter was spearheaded by college-educated, middle-class black people. It wasn't spearheaded by people who were dirt poor. In fact, many of the people who were dirt poor in these ghettos, they were the ones who suffered the most from these riots. And the reason why these riots happened was because for two years now, 
the uh, the black identitarian press and the leftist press has been purposely stoking racial anger. And then you had the, the 1619 Project in 2019. And then, of course, you had the death of the of the black man in Georgia by killed by those two white men that happened a few months before. And the press, of course, was built. Ahmed Aubrey. Yeah, that was that was the reason why the riots broke out. That was the original. They tried to make that the flashpoint, and then George Floyd happened, and they apparently thought that that made it. For yeah, they a better. Had, they had been pining for a racial riot, a racial explosion for months. They had been stoking every little uh, thing that had popped up. This is just like they were stoking the thing with the the anti Asian violence. They were trying to provoke trying, Asian yeah. riots in America. They're trying to do anything they can to stoke um, minority anger at white people and at America, so they can finally have their revolution. Well, Millie apparently believes in that. He uh, believes in systemic racism. He believes in all that stuff. He tried to convince Trump of that and tried to tell Trump. Because remember, this is one of the things that we were outraged at is Trump. uh, Trump was, why isn't he sending in the military? Why is he letting the country burn down like what's going on? He can, he has as president, he's allowed to nationalize the federalize the National Guard in these states. And Milley was the one who was standing in the way of doing that. Now, Trump should have fired him on the spot. He should have fired him on the spot, put somebody else in who would follow his orders. But, but like Alan West in there or something. The, the fact that Milley would would directly contradict the president and get in a shouting match with the president. Can you imagine you're a general? Can you imagine if uh, if General Eisenhower had gotten in a shouting match with FDR? He would be fine. I'm pretty sure there's a similar situation, not quite a shouting match, but a similar thing happened uh, in the very next administration between a couple of chaps by the name of Harry Truman and uh, Douglas MacArthur. Yeah, and Truman dropped him. Fired him immediately. He was as popular as MacArthur was. He fired him. Yeah, Douglas MacArthur was an absolute war hero. Everyone loved him, and Truman still fired him because if you're a general, your your job is to follow the orders of your commander in chief. You don't get into a shouting match uh, at him. You don't argue systemic racism with them. You don't justify people who are in the streets of your country rioting. And then, you know, and, and so this should have been a red flag to Trump right there that Millie was not loyal to him. That is a bit surprising to me. Again, this is, you said this is all according to the book. This yep, is according to the book. This all came out of the book. I'm just like, I'm a little surprised that, yeah, why Trump especially needs to be said, and I say this having grown up watching his show, but he made his career saying you're fired like why why would you not fire him immediately at that point I mean, people point to oh trump just respects generals too much again trump never served he was in a military high school and that was it he never served so he has respect for generals he would always say i love generals we have the greatest generals you know mad dog mattis so <laughs> he he has a certain reverence for the military which is understandable and respectable you know well, you and I trump, about- trump's view of the military is about as naive as the average conservative's view of the military yes. because i remember when mad dog mattis got appointed you All had conservatives the memes about him, like he killed 15 men with a hand grenade before it detonated. You yeah, know, like yeah. Chuck Norris yeah. memes, basically. You had all these Chuck Norris memes coming out about him. All these, all these people were all excited that he appointed Mad Dog Mattis. Nobody had ever heard of Mattis before that. Blessed patron saint of chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody, nobody had any idea who he was, what he had done, what he believed, where he had served, if he was he in Afghanistan or Iraq. Nobody knew. They just liked the name. But yeah, Mad. He's going to send Mad Dog Mattis over there to bomb them ragheads. He's going. He's going to take them out. This was the For this America. was the mentality of a lot of people in Middle America who were still living in 2003, and they voted for John McCain. Well, let's back up. They voted for Bush in 2004. Yep. Because Bush was going to drop bombs. He was going to. Kerry drop. wasn't going to. Kerry was mm-hmm. a 1960s hippie pinko. They voted for John McCain in 2008 because John McCain was going to drop bombs. Prisoner of war in Vietnam. Obama was a 1960s hippie. Mm-hmm. They voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 because he was going to drop bombs and he was going to make this an American century. And so you still got a string. You still got a uh, um, what's the word? You still got a strain of that in Middle America that still thinks if you appoint a general that he, that he's going to go bomb people. He's got a He's got a cool nickname. He's got a badass nickname like that, and that means that the president's doing something right. And Trump, like these people, had a very naive view of the military. The DOD, and I've talked to conservatives around here. They don't they don't share that view of the military. They don't share that jingoistic view of the military because they know what the DOD is. It's one giant bloated bureaucracy that we waste hundreds of millions of dollars on every single year that goes to pad the pockets of fat generals like Mark Milley. And the problem is people in middle America, they don't know that. They haven't been informed that. They haven't been informed of that because Fox News 
and the conservative media haven't informed them of that. And part of that is naivete on the part of conservative media because let's face it, a lot of conservative commentators, they're as naive as Trump was when he went in. They it's, look at the military and they think – It's respectable. Remember, it's respectable. Serve the, thank you for your service. They fought for our freedoms. They lost their limbs and they lost their friends for our freedoms. And again, I grew up, as I've told you, you know, I grew, we both grew up in small town beginnings, I think. And Nat, what are some of the early things you're taught you know, when it comes to respecting institutions of society? You know, thank a police officer. Thank, thank a soldier. If you see someone in uniform, you know, you know thank them for their service it's natural it was for the longest time yeah it was naturally deserving of our respect but what this really means is that now the system the institution at least and the leaders at top you can still respect individual troops you know who are just you know the, the who form the rank and file of the military you know the the good old boy from the midwest who just wants to serve his country but the system itself the institution of the military as we knew it is no longer deserving of our automatic respect and trust and confidence. And it needs to earn those things back with new leadership that serves the American people and doesn't serve this interagency consensus. But until then, it is part of the deep state. Well, part of the reason why conservatives are so naive about this stuff is because people who are supposed to be informing them are supposed to be organizing them. They have other interests. And we're going to see this with the vaccine mandates. Uh, this was a this is a clip that played. I believe it was uh, it was Wednesday. It was Wednesday of this past week. This is um, this is conservative talk show host Rich Zioli filling in for Mark Levin on the Mark Levin Show, and I, I want you to think. You know, normally, like every party, every political party in every country, you've got people who just go to work every day. They just they go to work. They're patriots. They love their country. And in America, this is true for Democrats and Republicans. They have different perspectives on things, and they go seek out news that confirms their biases and perspectives. This has always been the case. You had newspapers in the 1800s. That Republicans would read because they had a Republican bent. Democrats gravitated toward Democratic newspapers. That's New just York the Times versus the Wall Street Journal. Kind exactly. Of yeah, that's just the way it's always been. It's the way it's always going to be. It is the responsibility, though, of the elites in those particular parties to try to look out for the best interests of their viewers, of their readers, of their listeners. And typically you expect them to share at least kind of the same worldview, the same goals. That isn't the case. And we're going to hear some of that frustration right now. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Michelle in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Hey, Michelle. Hey, how are you doing tonight? So thank you so much for having me on. I also am an originally Philly girl. Nice. <laughs> you got all the Philly people tonight. Love it. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm calling because uh, as, as most Americans, we just feel so completely helpless, like there's nothing we can do. Um, and in recent light of the uh, mandate with Joe Biden's, uh, you know, vaccine mandate, you know, with uh, businesses, 100 people or more having to get vaccinated, I feel like we, like, more than ever, we need to come together. Uh, I think that's our downfall. We're not able to come together. The Swamp News can get anything they want out. They can organize their people. Um, I can't, we came up with something called so stop, stop right there a second. walkout. So she's frustrated. You can tell she's almost in tears. She's so she frustrated. She sounds exhausted, yeah. Yeah, because because every single day you turn on the news, it's defeat after defeat after defeat. California right. recall, vaccine mandates, Afghanistan collapsing. It's just I mean, they're literally every – there's absolutely nothing that the government can do to conservatives that conservatives can do to stop them. And she's looking around and she's saying, now, you know, all we have to do is look mean at Democrats and Democrats can get a mob in the streets. Why can't we organize? Why can't we do that? Um, we're trying to get everybody who is annoyed with this walkout, I mean, with this vaccine mandate, uh, and, and people who are even vaccinated, you know, that just know this is just like a complete government overreach. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, alien. We need to come together. Uh, this Friday is uh, the 17th is Constitution Day. So we picked this day because we think it's a perfect right for everybody to get out and stand up for their rights. We are encouraging everybody who doesn't want to be vaccinated, doesn't want to be bullied by, by, by this administration to, to just simply call out of work. Just just call out of work. Um, we can do this. <laughs> I'm not asking. So that's a good idea, but it's kind of soon. It doesn't have a lot of organization. You know, he ought to give her some constructive criticism and, you know, offer some alternatives. Because this episode aired, this is the episode of the 15th, and she's talking about a walkout two days later on the 17th. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he ought to give her, you know, give her some constructive criticism, say, you know, how about, you know, how about this? Why don't we wait a little bit and, you know, get whenever we're more organized or target only the businesses that have 100 employees or more? But no. This is what he says instead. 
our poor. Yeah, but why call out of work and hurt your? I mean, businesses right now are struggling so hard to find people to just do the job. Why punish your 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 job? Oh my God! Why punish the employer who's demanding you get an injection or else get fired? Uh, is this guy? I've never heard of this guy before, but is he serious? Uh, of course, he's serious. The GOP is the party of Wall Street. Business, the economy, Big capitalism, business. fiscal conservatism. Yes, it's not the party of workers. The workers That's make up— That's socialism, don't you know, Jacob? If exactly. You if you workers. support workers, you, support, you're, you, you must be a socialist, as he's going to let us know here real quick. But the thing is, the rank and file of Republicans, the rank and file of voters are employees. They are not employers. They're They're not, not, I mean, business owners, I mean, yeah, middle-class business owners— can sometimes be in the Republican Party, but clearly there are more employees in the Republican Party base than there are employers. Well, in any party, there's always going to be more employees just because, well, yeah, just by virtue. It, I mean, just by virtue of the numbers you have to, you need to win elections. So every party has to come out with a strategy to somehow placate employees and give them something that will help them improve their standard of living, knowing that those employees are never going to be business owners. But that's not what they do. That's not what the, the intelligentsia of the Republican Party does. Let's keep listening. And we're just going to play the rest of this on a 1.5 speed, by the way, because it's a longer segment. We have so there's so many businesses that just you know want to do this mandate, even though they don't have to, and I don't know why. But it, it's one day, you know. Do you know the uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. A lot of, I, Michelle, listen. Thank you for the call. I, I appreciate it very much. I, I don't know if I can just you know. A lot of businesses are struggling right now just to stay open, and they've had a very very tough year. And uh, I mean, I know them. I know these business owners. They're dying, and they're just they're having a really hard, hard time with it. I think the better approach would be as employees to make your voice heard and say, no, look, you got to fight this. But it's <laughs> that's what she's wanting to do. Biden's idiocy. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, I think that's the best strategy. But, you know, that's me. I just I know like, I mean, I've talked to a lot of these restaurants at the Jersey Shore and they're just struggling, literally struggling to just stay afloat right now. And a big part of it has been they just don't have enough employees because you've had all of these policies of paying people to not work. And people are staying home, and they're not taking jobs. And you've got jobs. There's, I, I talked about this last time I filmed in for Mark. This guy, uh, Mike, who owns a seafood place in Jersey Shore, owns a couple of them. Actually, this summer, if you ever go to the Jersey Shore and you see the banners that fly by, and he paid for a banner to fly by just advertising people to come to work for him. I, I, see, I see billboards with people trying to get employees. How much money does that cost, by the way? How much money does it cost to rent a plane to fly by with a banner or to rent billboards? I'm pretty sure that's... It's probably not the, as much as it costs for a salary, but that's still a lot of money. That, that's, that's a good point. If he yeah. used that money to up the salary or up the offer, I'm sure he could get himself some employees. <laughs> I, <laughs> this, I, he, this guy's uh, not even thinking. This doesn't make any sense. You're going to spend money to fly a banner. Did, did he say that he was flying that banner? Uh, flying, pay to have a banner flown in the sky, you know, like Biden stole the election that's, or something. That's insane. That is insanity. So remember that for a lot of these companies right now, they're, they're trying to understand what the mandate means. They're trying to understand how it affects them. They're trying to see any legal maneuvers that, that might be at play here. But let's make sure that we always aim our, our sights on who's making the policy here, which is which is Biden. Now, look, if in your job, if, you're, if your employer has mandated it and you want to make your voice heard and, and you, look, then go ahead, knock yourself out. I mean, you know, do, do what you got to do. I'm not, I'm not saying not to do that, but I'm saying just to organize a movement around people calling out of work when it may not be your employer's fault. It, it's not the employer's fault, but the employer has a right to defy that mandate. There are numerous states already saying they're going to defy the mandates. You, even back during the early lockdown days, you had like – he mentioned Jersey. There was that gym in New Jersey where the owners infamously – they refused to shut down their business. They refused to impose masks. They refused to shut down their business, and they let customers come in and continue working out. And there was that viral video of a sheriff who was on their side who came there in front of a crowd and said, you know, it's my duty to inform you guys. Technically, you're not allowed to be here. This business is not allowed to operate. But with that being said, go on inside, stay safe and have fun. And everybody cheered. Like business owners have the right to defy it because what's Biden going to do? Is he just going to start arresting business owners? I mean, and he very well may at that point, but that would ultimately then end up being to his detriment. And you say organized protests against Biden. Yeah. When that happens, the protesters all get put on terrorist watch lists. And they get the FBI knocking down their door. So it's not it's clearly not easy to organize protests against Biden. And again, assuming the protests even do anything, Biden doesn't care if a couple hundred thousand Trump supporters march on the National Mall unless they, you know, decide to go on a tour of the Capitol and then he'll have them arrested. <laughs> but oh my goodness. And there's still more. And especially with small businesses, they are they are hurting in a big way right now. This administration has done everything they possibly can to put the thumb on them. You know, you take like my idiot governor in New Jersey, the king, Phil Murphy. He said one time a few months ago, they asked him about extending the unemployment benefits and if he would stop it or if he would make people at least prove that they're trying to get a job. And you know what he said? He said, no, employers are just gonna have to pay people more. This is how the left is going to get to their $15 minimum wage. They also want by 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 doing everything they possibly can to keep people from going back to work in this country. They'll achieve the $15 minimum wage because the, the employers will have no choice but to pay people $15, $18, $20 an hour. 
And you know my fear is? My fear is that uh, they'll say whatever happens this fall and winter with COVID, well, they got to justify more benefits, more handouts. Have you looked at the $3.5 trillion social welfare bill that they're pushing through right now in Washington? This thing has got you covered from cradle to grave with everything, including more handouts for people. And there's no incentive for people to work anymore. Honestly, they're taking it away. But that's part of the plan. That's also part of the plan of moving America towards Marxism, is if you can end people's reliance on their employers for health care and hell, even their wages, and then you make them more dependent on government. This is all part of a plan here. So this is very insightful into uh, into what Republicans, what fiscal conservatives, how fiscal conservative Republicans view capitalism, their their view of capitalism, how they see the capitalist world versus the socialist world. It's that Ben Shapiro world of, oh, capitalism will work everything out. It'll all be fine if you just let the free market keep doing Notice it. Notice he said um, if you – they want to make people dependent on government from cradle to grave in this $3.5 trillion plan. He said – Instead of having people dependent on their employer for health care and wages, they want to make people dependent on the government. In either scenario, employees are still dependent. Yeah. Workers are still dependent. Either you're dependent on your employer, you completely depend on your employer, or you depend on the government. I think if given the choice, most people would prefer to depend on the government because their employer may be a jackass. And, and their employer has their own financial incentives and interests to look after. Their employer has zero financial incentives to look after them because they didn't vote their employer into office. They can right. at least vote. I mean, their vote might not be counted, and but they still, can at it's least a, vote. It's a, it's a vote for a figurehead, but at least it's a vote. Exactly. They can't vote for their employer. They can't vote for the shareholders in the mega corporation that they work for. Um, they don't have any say-so in that. So if given the choice, this is why if, – if this is the choice that the Republican Party is offering people, you're either going to be dependent on your employer or you're going to be dependent on the government. Is it any wonder why so many younger Americans are gung-ho about being dependent on the government? They'll say, hey, sign me up. Absolutely. Hey, you want to pass that $3.5 trillion bill? You want to offer me health care? You want to offer me a guaranteed job? I'll take that any day. It's better than – working for this employer who doesn't want to pay me even $15 an hour. And notice how the lady wasn't talking about – she wasn't even talking about that. She was talking about the vaccine mandate. She was talking about how the government is wanting to step in and deny you bodily autonomy yeah, so and what we can do to organize against that and get together and collectivize against this. And she was thinking maybe a walkout. You know, that's what labor used to do back in the day. Exactly. If an employee what felt, if employees, if one employee felt he was being wronged, like if an employee was fired indiscriminately – or, you know, for whatever reason, made to mm -hmm. work in unsafe conditions, the other employees would get together that stick up for him, say, hey, we're all in this together. He's our buddy. We're going to walk out next Friday and we'll see how, you know, we'll see if our employer wants to keep making us work in these conditions. That was called a strike back in the day. But the I, the fact that she's wanting to strike over something, a policy that the government is wanting to implement, he's not even up for that. He doesn't even support that because, you know, she's offering a solution because he's not offering her a solution. Nobody in the Republican Party right now is offering these people a solution. So on the one hand, you have the Democratic Party that's run by a bunch of naturalized people, from many of whom are from the third world, from countries that already have a bias against white people. And they're indoctrinated in American universities to believe that the vast proletariat of white people out there hate their guts. So at the one time, they're taught to both hate and fear these people. So they're going to screw these people over every chance they get. So the only avenue these people have to look toward any kind of help is the Republican Party. So they listen to Republican talk show hosts, they watch Fox News, they watch Newsmax, and they're looking for some kind of help, some kind of organization. They're looking for a leader. They're looking for leaders to and lead them in opposition to this tyranny that they're facing. And they offer solutions because they're not receiving anything. This guy isn't offering them anything because he's not even talking about this. They offer solutions and they get shot down. Like, why would you want to hurt your employer? Your employer gives you writes you a check every two weeks. He pays for your food. Like it's he, he all subsidizes about your insurance. If you get sick, who's going to pay for that doctor bill? Your employer is. Why would you want to make your employer mad? Don't you realize that who puts food on your table? You're dependent on your employer, and this is what they get in return. They don't get. So this is why they don't have anywhere to turn. They don't have. They're getting hit with a vaccine mandate. Their generals and the military is just running roughshod over the Constitution. And there's no organization. There's no protests organized. There's no strikes organized. Nothing. And he just but, pivots completely because it's it, it's all about fiscal conservatism. He pivots away from the issue, like you said. She wasn't even talking about government spending. Government spending is one thing. If the government spends another three trillion, yeah, it sucks. It de decreases the value of the dollar. It increases our debt. But it's not the same as the government ordering you to take an injection that you are not fully comfortable with and that you don't know what's in it. You know, those are two completely different things. He'd rather focus on the much lesser problem.
Well, he'd rather focus on the problem that the business owners and Wall Street might have to face. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about these people who work for Wall Street and work for these businesses for $12 an hour. Because the next thing he goes to is, yeah, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get these employers to a $15 an hour minimum wage. We can't have you making $15 an hour. You peasants don't deserve that. No. Now, I don't think we should have a minimum wage myself. But with millions and millions of foreigners coming in from countries where they make 50 cents an hour competing with our jobs, a minimum wage is starting to look nicer every day because if they raise that minimum wage to $15 an hour, these immigrants aren't going to be able to compete with Americans. And so if you consider – if they're not going to shut down the border, if they're not going to stop the immigration, I I mean at that point, the only thing to shut these immigrants out of the labor market is a minimum wage. But I digress. uh, One last thing on this guy. Um, He mentions that she. He said, you know, if your employer decides to implement the vaccine mandate and you wanna, you wanna go against that, you wanna, you know, you wanna quit, whatever, knock yourself out, go for it, lose your job, you know, lose your income, but don't try to organize other people to do the same thing because then that will hurt businesses. Well, if you decide I'm gonna quit, if you're if you're forcing me to take a vaccine, uh, you know, take a vaccine or keep my job, and I said I'm gonna quit, then my employer can say, okay, see you later, I can hire somebody else. But if 5,000 of us decide that we're going to quit over this, even if we're you know, vaccinated, unvaccinated just for the principle, then he's not going to be able to do that. In Europe, that's what they're doing. You had, uh, you had people who were vaccinated that were burning their vax cards because just to be in solidarity with people who didn't want to get vaccinated and weren't allowed to shop for groceries. Uh, you wouldn't see that in America. In, in Switzerland, they got tens of thousands of people marching in the streets against the COVID mandates. You're not going to see that in America because – there is no right-wing opposition to anything that the Democrats do because the Republican Party is the party of Wall Street. And until the Republican Party elites are dethroned and until they're replaced by new elites that actually care about the voters and the interests of the voters who put these Republican politicians in office, nothing is going to change. So that is all the time we have left for this episode, guys. You may have noticed we did not get to the usual main topic that we usually discuss. We usually have a bit of a back and forth where I discuss one thing, Jacob discusses something, and then we have a larger topic that takes up at least half the episode or a plurality of the episode. But the main topic we have planned for this episode is very in-depth. It's a long look through American history, and especially in light of recent events, with which Jacob and I both have stories and experiences to tell you guys, to relate about this story. So we're going to be releasing this episode first as a part one of episode 38, and then part two will be released in the coming days. Stay tuned for part two of this episode where we talk about one of the most controversial figures in American history and how the complete revision of his reputation in recent years is indicative of the left's broader plan for completely revising American history as we know it. We'll talk to you in the next episode, guys.